Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. We are being joined together as a people to build the household of God. That's what the words from Ephesians said for us today that Carla read. We are this people being formed in this way. Now some some context on on what's going on in the book of Ephesians there is that um, the Apostle Paul is writing to these people um, coming together from two different groups, uh, two different ethnicities, two different religions, two different ways of understanding the world, and that there's this line of hostility that has run through them. But he says that through Christ, the line of hostility is being torn down. And what God is building in their midst is not two new people or one side wins, but building his presence in the world. He's building life into that place. This past Sunday, we started a new sermon series looking at how our households can be domestic monasteries for God. How our households can be places set apart so that we can be this place that witnesses to and makes the household of God in the world. 
And so we looked back to the book of Jeremiah. This is, um, I didn't plan on how well Jonah fit into this sermon series, but, but Jonah in that sermon series, we heard about Jonah being in the belly of the beast, that Israel is, finds itself in the belly of the beast. And every Sunday we reference that, I tried to say, so to the church always finds itself in the belly of the beast in exile. We are always looking towards something that is not yet fulfilled here on earth. The church always errs when they think they can fulfill it on earth. Um, funny enough, the quote on the back of the bulletin that we'll get to soon enough is, is he, that guy, Eric Vogelin, originated the quote about trying to imitize the eschaton as a critique of the modern world, trying to bring the perfect world into the moment. That is not our work. We do not bring the perfect world. We always exist in the belly of the beast. But what was amazing is what is God's advice as we live in that way? It's not to make the world perfect. It's not to subsist in rebellion all the time. But we went to the book of Jeremiah when the people find themselves again swallowed up. And God's advice to the people was build homes, plant gardens, have kids. So domestic, so normal. And yet that's where God meets us in this call, is to, is to have households that are this witness in this reign. And, th and that passage goes on to say that you'll be there for 80 years, and we talked about how in the book of Jeremiah that 80 years is actually a stand-in for it, not in your lifetime. Um, so I remember the old cartoons where the cartoon character would be counting the days on the wall that they were in jail um, or that they were waiting for something. That is not the point of the 80 years. It's not for you to go, okay, well, let's start the timer today, count down till freedom. Um, it would be nice if things worked that way. Um, but what they're called to do is to say, this is the place in which we are called to. And we talked about how that's not an error. God has called people into these places and times. So too has God called us to exist in the place that we are today, where we are. God has called us too, as we find ourselves in this moment, to build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. I love the idea of planting gardens too, because they're certainly you can you can speed plant a garden, but but to have the mindset of planting a garden means there's some permanence to where you are. If we're given an easy out, planting gardens doesn't really come natural to us. But to say this soil, planted with seeds, with the time for the seeds to be able to grow produce, that I'll be able to eat them, resets our clock in a certain way. It calls us into living in season differently in that way. And so too, the church is, is sort of always out of place in the world. Differently, Paul will, will call us um, resident aliens, um, a people set apart. Um, Israel and the church are always called to be this place that's different from the world. It's hard for us to remember that sometimes. Um, it's easier to go along with the world. It's easier to continue in that path. Or back to, back to high school, which is still the fears I live with, nobody wants to be weird. <laughs> nobody wants to be different. Um, 
Different is the easiest one to pick on. And Christians are given the harder challenge that we have no diet or clothes that set us apart. Jews, Muslims, lots of other religions have ways of of eating, of speaking in language, and of dressing that make it so that you're different. The church, in God's wisdom, is not given any of those things. It's supposed to inhabit in its time just like everybody else, and yet still be a member of some other place and time. Sometimes I think it'd be easier if we just had a uniform. Um, then, then I would be freed from the demand to find ways to be stinct, distinct in ways other than that. So that's the challenge we find ourselves in. We're called into this space, and this is the place and time we exist in. Now, um, one other thing from last week, because I think it, it, it sits over the whole series, is that the book we're using, which we have in the back and more are coming, has this idea of the domestic monastery is this place in which we're called to, in which we flourish in good and kind ways, and that is all true and good and beautiful and necessary. What Ronald Wurlheiser in his probably wisdom leaves out of the book is that there is other forces that want to pull us away from that. Or they're often unnamed, they're, they're unassumed in the book, but, but that they're are these ways in which we want to live another life, we want to be in another place, we want to do something else. And so we are drawn into conflict. Now this, this phrase, you have to be stronger than the tormentors that you find everywhere today, came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer last week when he goes out on the boat with a friend. They're doing the experiment um, of this sort of pastoral training community um, that is training pr- pastors to sort of re- resist the ideology of Nazism, which is the time that he existed in, to resist that ideology. And his friend um, from back home takes him out on a boat and says, you know, maybe you should tone it down. Um, Maybe this is all a little bit too much. Um, And so Bonhoeffer, they go out and takes him to where soldiers are training and airplanes are lining up. And he says to them that we have to be stronger than these tormentors we find everywhere today. The call into being a domestic monastery, to living in the ordinary, to practicing the presence of holiness, or all the other phrases that we use for it from all these great books and spiritual practices, is that it also has to be stronger than the tormentors we find everywhere today. It has to find strength in and of itself. And this is another deep challenge, right? Um, Because we live in an era where it's much easier to make peace with them or to go along with them. I mean, we, it's, if we can magnify these things up to, to I mean, if I've been watching uh, the baseball playoffs, um, it's Halloween season, so it's scary movies and scary political ads. That's all we get. Um, there was one, I don't even know who it was for, but it was sort of like, so-and-so is destroying all of your world. Um, this was not a Halloween movie. This was a political ad. I don't know who the Founding Fathers in their wisdom placed these two seasons together, which I think must have been an error. Halloween must have not been, because you don't know which one you're watching. It's like Michael Myers and then don't vote for this person because they're like Michael Myers. Somebody hasn't run that ad yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Uh, that's the guy from the movie Halloween, which if you don't get the reference, don't worry about it. Um, And yet there's other ads, um, other ways of consumerism, 
other ways of viewing the world that also run alongside these that draw us into disorders in different ways. I mean, certainly I think the hyper-anxiety that we're called in to exist in our political moment is not a choose the right side to alleviate the anxiety, but choose to be non-anxious. We've talked about how uh, one of our words here is, is to be a non-anxious presence in the world. I think that goes along with, with being a domestic monastery is, is I've made this joke every political season, but this is like the 18th. I've only been able to vote since 2000. And every time it's the most important election of our time. So I'm like 10 for 10 or something like that on most important election. I feel bad for all of you who lived before my time because now is the time where every election is the most. I would love for them one day to run ads that are like, this one, not so big. Last one, big deal. This one, we can all relax, show up, do your thing, and then uh, anxiety is how they get us. Um, but it's not just anxiety around that, it's anxiety around keeping up with the Joneses. It's anxiety around sexuality, it's around confusion about all these different things. It's anxiety about um, what do I need to be and do to be on the right side of this moment all of the time. So the idea of a household as a place where we begin in that journey is not... Uh, something we go along with easily. So uh, there's one other thing I want to do before we sort of get into today's sermon, which is about order, um, is, is the leadership team always tries to get me to remember that we have these one, three, and five things that orient our world. I often share them uh, like this, and they're like, we can't remember that. Like, it's obviously word, confession, tradition, order, and table. And even David's like, I didn't even know the last one was a table. I'm like, David, well, what's it look like? Um, uh, so I've remade them, and they were like, give us something to remember them by. So the, we have these stickers today, just similar to that up there, to remember these by, um, because they're sort of things we've committed to being guided into, and for the past, for the next, when leadership and I came up with them, I think it said it would be good for us to spend five years with these. Not to always be reinventing the wheel, churches chasing. Um, we're a purpose-driven church, now we're a crazy love church, now we're not a fan church, now we're not all this. But to sort of bedrock into sort of these disciplines and these ways of seeing the world. The first one, witness, um, is on the back of the bulletin every week. The mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the reign of the triune God, the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reconciling all things. This first one is sort of the overarching one. And what's contained within this is first that defines church is to be a witness. We are not the reign of God. We are not the kingdom of God. But we are a witness to it through the miracle of God working through ordinary people such as us. We don't bring the kingdom of God. And if you've been around the church long enough, particularly in this modern era, that should sound a little distinct. We are being drawn as witnesses into this, as witnesses who see the work that God is doing and can testify, which is what witnesses do in our world, to it, and name that. This past week, it was also, um, I came across uh, the writer Richard Beck, who's explaining how that if the church is supposed to be a moral witness in the world, better than the world, it's going terrible. Um, I could list the scandals, list the times. You could just Google anything church scandal and you'll get plenty of them. And he said that the church then is perhaps maybe to be a sacramental witness in the world. 
a witness to the grace of God drawing us together. In, in the words of Paul from Ephesians, making one people out of many peoples, of, of tearing down the dividing wall, of being that place. The phrase I like to use, which came up in Jonah too, is that the, the church is a repentant missionary. We are not the perfected kingdom of God. God has not made us that. And yet we too can still witness to this work of reconciliation. Uh, another way of putting it is the renewal of all things. You know, I only had so many words. Um, uh, witness is the key one in there, hence, hence the, it being at the top of the image. The next one, um, faith, hope, and love, which are the th- three cardinal theological virtues, I think help names how we find ourselves in life. This is, I think, people always like this one when I talk about it, but it's maybe the hardest to remember, is that faith names how we narrate ourselves in relationship to the past. We have faith because God has done something first in Israel, then in raising Jesus from the dead, and then in the character of goodness that drew us into the church. There are many different ways in which many of us have found ourselves here. One of the temptations of the church is to find one way and then over-program that way for everybody else. This is the one way in. Uh, We resist that temptation, but the name we use for that is faith. And it's this past orientation that sets us in a spot that we know that goodness is possible. We know that reconciliation is possible. We know that renewal is possible because what we've seen in our lives testifies to what God has always been doing, and so we have faith. The next one is hope, which orients us towards the future. There's this notion of that while we have faith and have seen goodness— the world still exists with, with disorder and anxiety and sin and challenges. And so the next place it calls us into, because of what we've seen in the past, we know this isn't the fullness of it. And so hope calls us into that future in which God will renew all things or reconcile all things or, or bring all things um, Uh, in Paul's great phrase, also in Ephesians, that he will sum up all things, that it will all be summed up in Jesus Christ. And so, too, we stand in hope of God's future act and hope of our future um, consummation as well. Uh, There's a lot within me that I have hope that will be transformed someday. And then love, then, uh, names our position in the present. That love is this way in which we find ourselves modeling what Christ has modeled to us in the world, to our neighbor, and to God. In the present of our lives, the governing logic is that of love. Love of uh, the way that Jesus sums this up is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That this is where we're drawn to in the present in this love. So the next five, these are the ones that I think perhaps of the most challenging, word, confession, table, order, tradition. Word um, is, is, as we were doing this, this leadership table has this... Um,
now it's back on. Um, but word is also this thing um, that is external to us. It's not found inside of us. That the word of God addresses the people of God means that there's something outside of us. It's not just me alone with my Bible, but it is God's sort of word breaking into this world. Meaning of John's gospel, it's the word that becomes flesh. It names that, that this world is in which the world in which God acted in in his word. God does many things throughout the scripture by the voice of his word. Word is an active agent, not a passive one. Confession um, is perhaps where we stand in a little bit. We hear the word. We respond to the word. We're drawn into the word. We're instructed by the word. We're guided by the word. And so we confess first um, in the words of Isaiah, woe, I'm a man of unclean lips, our unworthiness. We confess every Sunday in the ways in which we too have added to our own dysfunction and disorder of the world, that we are not immune from that. But then we also confess the great work of God coming out of that. Psalm 51 was our grounding text for this, but it's amazing. It's uh, canonically or, or structured as it's David's confession after the sin with Bathsheba, which is an interesting story um, that, that bleeds into that in an interesting way. But most of the movement of the psalm is because I have done wrong and you are of unfailing love. And that's the first, David's confession, our confession starts with have mercy on us because you are a God of unfailing love. We don't come saying have mercy on us because we're hoping for a chance. David names already at the start the unfailingness of God's love. But the second half, he talks about how because these bones have broken, because I have gone astray, and because you are renewing me, I will teach your ways. I will sing your song. I will go forth as another one. Confession is, is, is where we can sort of do that. Table. Um, this room, I, I say this before, every uh, room has a story. The story of this room, hopefully, is that we are centered at the table together where Christ promises to meet us. That the table is the center of our worship, not the music team, not the preacher. Uh, nothing better, nothing than where God continues to show up for us and we receive grace and mercy. Um, and then we announce at the table that we await his return, that fulfillment of time. Um, this also goes into the table of our lives that we take an element of this table and we go to other tables, bringing that too, that we pronounce this until the Lord comes again. Tradition. Um, Today's sermon is about order. We'll do tradition next. Um, Tradition is this this odd one because it names that we don't make ourselves, um, that we're part of something that's gone on long before us. G.K. Chesterton calls this democracy of the dead. That when we get together and decide, like, okay, how is our church going to worship? How is our church going to be? Uh, Chesterton says, it's not just the living who get a vote, but the dead who came before you who also get a vote. I think in Chesterton's minds almost is that, that like, we get 1% of the vote and the democracy of the dead gets 99% of it to vary from that. It might be more important in our world because we live such traditionless lives. We live unrooted lives. Um, there's, a, there's a way in which this sort of takes over our space and our world that we are always making ourselves up again rather than finding ourselves um, well-traditioned. Uh, uh, that brings us to the last one, order. 
Um, today's sermon is about domestic monastery and order, how we might bring order into our lives. And so the psalm that Jonathan read for us this morning is looking towards the temple, looking to God's goodness, looking to this place of order, and then um, wanting to long to be there. Um, that the challenge of, of order more than perhaps any of the uh, other words is that it implies then disorder. We had other options for this word. Um, peace and beauty were two other ones. Peace would imply that there's a world that wars against peace. Beauty would imply then that there's sort of um, disfigurement and ugliness in the... Uh, so too, order implies disorder. Um, you can hear any of those three words if you don't like order in there. Um, but that it implies disorder in our lives and our disordered ways. And, and so much so that we see disorder in our world and we see disorder in our own souls and household that it's this hard place to say that like if we were to extinguish the disorder... If we're honest, I think we wouldn't know where to start. And that sometimes we might even vote to extinguish ourselves. We see this honestly in some of our darker thinkers um, who see that, that we have no right to be and we should extinguish ourselves. But more in our optimistic thinkers, we think it's out there all the time. and We never look inside and see the old disorder of our households there. Um, and so too, with the book we're reading, names a lot of the ways in which um, disorder is pulling us away from places, pulling us away from life, pulling us away from where we're called to be. He says that we live in these cells. We'll get to that quote. But every time we leave our, our place where we're called to be, we come back less of a person. When we leave our commitments, our relationships, what we're called into, we come back less each time. It's where we begin to witness to disorder. And an optimistic view on what we'd get through in the sermon. The quote on the back of the bulletin, I think, is important for this moment. No one is obliged to take part in the spiritual crisis of society. On the contrary, everyone is obliged to avoid this folly and live his or her life in order. Despite all the ads and all the things in which I am called to, none of us is called to live into the spiritual crisis or the disorder of our society. I can fix it. I'm called to be there. I need to be there. If I'm not there, who will be there? Newsflash, everyone else. Um, uh, with their own solutions to the problems. But that we can actually say, no, no, I've had enough of that. I can live in my space in order. I, I don't do application of my sermons very often. That would be like the hardest application, I think. Uh, so much of me feels called to, to participate in the spiritual crisis of our society, to be in the disorder. I love having my opinions about everything that happens. And to do that, I need to be knowledgeable at everything that happens. And so, too, I, I plod my way further and further into the spiritual crisis of our time. I become part of the spiritual crisis of our time. But I am not obliged to do that. I'm not required to do that. On the contrary, the place I'm called to be first is to set my, myself in order, to have a household of order, to have a witness to order. 
This is a deep, deep challenge. So much so that, yeah, you could stop there. The mic didn't cut out right then. Then I would have been done. Um, uh, there's a, my, at my last church, there was a guy who bought me a shirt that said, history major, I'd find you more interesting if you were dead. Um, so I majored in history, and he always thought that that was funny, that he would give me that shirt, that I would find him more interesting if he was dead. Um, I took it as a positive. I think he might have meant it as a slight. Um, uh, but the disorder of our time traces back in one of the books that I've been reading to the 14th century. Now, I'm going to go fast through this, one, because of time, two, because it's interesting but not that interesting at the same time because it doesn't solve anything. Except for the one thing that I'll say in Carl Truman, uh, his book on the rise and triumph of the modern self, which is a good book, and there's a simpler version of it that I can't remember the name of, but... Um, he says that when he talks to kids about how did we get into the disorder, he teaches at college, he talks to college kids about how did we get into the disorder of this world today. And it's a Christian school, and so they all have the Bible answer, which is sin. Um, and he says that's a bit like saying how did the towers fall on September 11th and responding gravity. Like, the truth of the matter is they fell because of gravity, but doesn't explain all the geopolitical and all the world situations that led to what happened on that day and why it went that way. So in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he tries to trace how we got to that point. This is a quick summary of his book and another book. Um, the 14th century one is the hardest one. Um, this is the origin of what they call nominalism, which in an effort to project um, monotheism and the divine, um, I'll make this one short because it's the nerdiest one, um, uh, the Christian theologians of the time, this is where we are our own worst enemy, um, separated things from having their being and substance and life in God into how we respond to them. So when you talk about, um, I, this is the example I always think of, um, I'll change it right now, but the, the idea is, is that like if you were to go into um, a pagan festival today. You were to go to uh, a group of people worshiping Satan, right? Um, we all would say, well, it really matters about how I'm relating to that space because it doesn't represent anything that real. Um, and so the meaning of things is more in what we place in them than it is in that they have true being in the nature of God, both good and bad. That's from William Ockham and these people in the 1400s. But we'll move forward. Um, the 1500s is, is the Renaissance. And if you're familiar with the Renaissance, this is where man sort of becomes the measure of all things. This is a, where we begin to get the optimism about what humans are. If you look at the art of the Renaissance, it's very human-driven. It's the idea that we're reaching the peak ourselves. Um, most of the thinkers at this time are Christian, but God's role in the picture begins to diminish accordingly as they see that humans can sort of reach the greatness themselves. The 1600s, this is where we get the Reformation, which is both this good thing in which we learn that we can correct the abuses in the churches and that we can make places where God's good news can flourish, and we also get that we can correct every abuse and divide the church forever and ever and ever. Um, so what comes in Luther's renewal of the church is also this idea that like everybody can start a new church whenever they want. And it continues down to this day. There's a joke about this with the guy who stops. Uh, he's on a bridge and somebody's about to jump. Um, and he says to him, hey, you shouldn't commit suicide. I'm a Christian. 
And the guy about to jump says, I'm a Christian too. And he goes, oh, well, I'm a Baptist. And the guy about to jump says, well, I'm a Baptist too. And the other guy says, well, I'm a free will Baptist. And the guy says, I'm a free will Baptist. And then the guy about to jump, the guy talking to him says, well, I'm a King James only free will Baptist. And the guy about to jump says, oh, I'm an NIV only uh, free will Baptist. And so the guy who stopped to help him pushes him off. Um, uh, this is how division works in church history, is that we, um, Luther, in his goodness in putting the church back on its track, opened up this doorway to more and more spiraling out. Um, I needed a joke to get through that one. Uh, 1700s scientific revolution. This is where we fully get into a unenchanted cosmos. One of the things that I hope to hit at the end of the sermon, although I'm running out of time, is that the secular sacred divide is weird. So we have sacred church, we have sacred prayer, we have this, and then we have secular jobs, work, and the other, and that really isn't what God designed. All of creation is supposed to sing with the praises of God. All of creation is supposed to be reconciled and renewed. And so we have this way in which we have divided the world into like, well, prayer is my sacred time, but then I do a job that's secular. That comes partially from the 1700 moons, is that we disenchant the cosmos through the scientific revolution of the time. 18th century is the age of reason. I think, therefore, I am. We begin to get into this idea of we can sort of reason ourselves into the world. 1900s, industrial revolution, the growth of cities. Um, both thinkers suggest that this is the time where relations become governed by money, which I think is an interesting way to think about the changes that happen in this time. Used to be relationships between people in a lot of ways. There were errors along the way, the journey of that. Um, but now all human relationships are summed up by the almighty dollar. 20th century, two world wars, uh, technology, consumerism, sexual revolution, all these things that then plant disorder in our world. So how did the world get disordered is an older story than we think it is. So the next thing, order. What does it mean to be a people of order? This is one of my favorite images from a children's book on counting, um, which is a great way to introduce any slide. Um, uh, nobody laughed, though. Uh, this is um, God's creation. God separates the light and the dark. Uh, makes the seas, makes the plants. On the top image, you see God creating these spaces. This is what happens in the book of Genesis. On the bottom image, God fills these spaces. It's a deep order here. This is, um, I have no problem with reading, with people who read the book of Genesis literally as a seven-day creation story, but Poetically, I think it reads more beautiful as this way in which God is bringing in things to being and filling the spaces he creates. This is the order that God makes and that he creates and then he fills. And there's this way in which he sees it all and it is good. Later, the Israelites are instructed to camp. Um, God um, gives them very specific instructions on how they are to camp around the tabernacle. Now, some of you are thinking God might seem a little OCD now, um, but this is how God, um, his order radiates forth. God instructs them to camp in this ordered way around the tabernacle, the place where true order and goodness and beauty resides. This is the, the inner sanctum of the temple when they finally get there. Um, the symmetry of this one is quite amazing. 
um, and the ways in which these aspects move up to holy and out to holy, that God has this ordered way of sort of being and making this place. Here's one that some of you have been to Europe, have participated in, a medieval cathedral. What's interesting about the cathedrals is they were designed from a God's eye view, which I find fascinating to think about. We, because of maybe all those things that we talked about, the disorder, we always look this way um, across, and yet occasionally we, we are drawn to something that draws us upward, um, and in the medieval mind, that, that means there's something looking downward at us. There are cathedrals designed to be an order of God. All this to say that order, and then uh, there's a directional thing too on how the cathedral is supposed to face in the back, which also comes from the Old Testament. Um, But the last image um, is, is this one, which comes from the liturgy of the ordinary, which is the order of a made bed. Tish Warren talks about how in the, in the chapter on order in that book, about how she um, never made the bed. She never saw the point um, because you get back in it and it gets messy again. So for Lent one year, she decides to make the bed and to sit on it in prayer. She says, as she began to do that for the 40 days, she makes her bed regularly now, is that she found that the little place of order she had created that little space of being there and drawing her mind to God before she reached for her phone, before she became a consumer, before she looked for other people and meaning and needing, that she was able to bring to her mind the order in which God had placed. And in this order, she found that that this was her little um, way of setting back the world when she began her day. She was about to go into all the disorder we talked about. And yet here she is taking the time to set it apart. The disorder of our days and time. The last thing I'll talk about is one of my favorite thinkers when I think about order and disorder is uh, Wendell Berry. I know many of you know I speak about him a lot. Um, uh, but in his his the documentary sponsored to play here a long time ago he has this phrase that we all live in an age of divorce we are all children of divorce what what life is has been pulled apart in a, in a different essay he says our model c- citizen now is a sophisticate who before puberty understands how to produce a baby but at the age of 30 will not understand how to produce a potato um which is a funny phrase, but what he's saying is, and because he's an agrarian, he's always looking at the ways and our disorders, we don't understand what it means to live anymore. We don't understand what it means to be neighbors. We don't understand what our bodies are for. We don't understand where our food comes from. I love chicken wings, but I don't know what happened to the rest of the chicken. And he thinks that's a disorder of our age. Just wings appear at the supermarket, but I don't know where the rest of it went. That we live in this age of divorce in which all these things are separated. But what Barry says is you don't put everything back together. He says there's no way you're going to put everything back together. What you do is take one thing and put it next to its proper thing. And that's the way in which we begin to repair our world. And so the, the point... Of, of today's sermon 
is then how do we begin to live as ordered people in the disordered ways? And the solution that I've proposed to the book, and through the book of Ephesians, the book of Jeremiah, is that we build houses, that we plant gardens. I didn't know this phrase from Frederick Douglass. I'm sure if you, many of you know it. I'm going to mess it up. Um, it's easier to, to raise a strong man than it is to repair a broken one. I always think of, when I heard that, I was like, first off, we worship a God who repairs broken people. But then there's also that deep truth that it's easier to raise places of order than it is to repair the whole world, to start in that spot. So that becomes the challenge for us today is how do we do this? How do we do this? The quote from last week was, uh, what is a monastery? A monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as it is a place set apart, period. How do we set apart our places and spaces in the world to be these places of order, witnessing to the reign of God? So the last thing I want to close with, there was a lot more with Barry that we could talk about later. Um, he has this wonderful image that we should think little rather than think big, that the modern slogan of our time is think big, think big, think big. And he says, let us think little. Um, let us see that if you're going to start an organization committed to recycling, that you could at least pick up cans on the way to your organization committed to that. Or that if you're going to try and save soil conservation, you might as well try on the soil that's in your backyard first. And he says that a citizen uh, raising a healthy household um, committed to the, to the ordinary way of being is doing more to fix the crises of our time than anything government could do. To think little and to think about the household. But we'll end with this quote from the book that we're reading because I think it names the ways in which we're always pulled away from this. Go to your cell and your cell will teach you, cell is the name for the monastic room and he says it's not about a room, it's about a place in which we are in the world. He says go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything you need to know. Stay inside your vacation, inside your commitments, inside your legitimate constrictive duties, inside your church, inside your family, and they will teach you where life is found and what Leah love means. Be faithful to your commitments and what you ultimately are looking for will be found there. Every time you leave these commitments, your cell, you become less, you come back less a person. Is telling us that every time we step outside of our commitments, every time we step, we are unfaithful, every time we walk away from what we should legitimately be doing, we come back less of a person for that betrayal. Every time we step into disorder. There's a rich spirituality in these principles. Stay inside your commitments. Be faithful. Your place of work is a seminary. Your work is a sacrament. Your family is a monastery. Your home is a sanctuary. Stay inside of them. Don't betray them. Learn what they are teaching you without constantly looking for life elsewhere and without constantly believing that God is elsewhere. We are called into our houses, our families, our relationships, our commitment and work. We're called to build houses and plant gardens where we are, to put two things together, to make our beds. It's the application that might be easier um, to make our beds, to live our life in those commitments because that is where life will be found. We leave them for disorder. We come back less of a person 
And so we're invited to find God in the place that he's placed us in in exile. Let us pray. God, you have created and ordered the universe in such a way that it sings its praises when it is ordered to you. As we experience ordered places, we are capable of singing with the psalmist, better is one day in this place than a thousand elsewhere. When we inhabit those ordered spaces, our hearts are drawn upward. We look into the goodness that you have for us. God, call us into our commitments and places and ways so that we, in our simple and small ways, can bring order. In order that witnesses in the made bed, in a set table, in food together, in meals shared, in the witness to the kingdom and reign that you promise us, God, be with us and guide us into these commitments as a people of your order so that